Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. But God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. When I think about younger teenagers, even younger than 18, thinking back to how I was when I was 16, 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, like these super young kids, I just don't think it's realistic to put this decision on them that is basically saying, are you okay with the risk of permanent health effects, permanent disease, permanent injury to your body, permanent infertility that you can never ever reverse? How can you ask that of such a small child? Hi, and welcome to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot with Gabe, and as we often do on Q Ideas, we try to listen and think well about many of the troubling issues of our day. One of them is the issue of teens struggling with their sexual identity and those who are quick to affirm their questioning and quickly trying to get them to transition away from their biological sex to the gender that they feel they are. Gabe, this is not an easy topic to discuss, but at the Spring Culture Summit, you tried to address it. This was one of those conversations. I think we talked about it in a good way, and and I wasn't the one hosting the interview, but we invited Dr. Preston Sprinkle, who's a biblical scholar and international speaker and president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, to help guide this conversation. But the conversation was on identity, teens, and gender. And over these last many years, it's become clear that this is a conversation needing to be had society-wide. This isn't just about Christians. It's not just about the church. It's about what's happening right now amongst teenagers, what's happening in this gender conversation. And of course, it can get so confusing, and it's always a difficult and complex conversation to have, especially if you're not having it with somebody who has experienced it. And so our hope at Q Ideas is always to bring you these conversations in the most authentic way we can so you can hear from people themselves who who maybe have walked through something that will teach us. And so we had that opportunity this year. And and the conversation was important because if, if you remember, or if you haven't read about this, in 2018, social scientist Lisa Littman published a study on what is called rapid onset gender dysphoria, much disputed, controversial. But the study pointed to an increasing trend of adolescent girls suddenly identifying themselves as transgender and seeking treatment, perhaps due to social pressure and media influence. So the study, obviously controversial, many people debating this idea, whether this is true or false or, or a horrible thing to even suggest. But we believed it would be important if we could hear a story of somebody who actually tells it in their own words and what that experience might have been like for them. And so I invited Preston to come and share a few of his thoughts on this topic. And then you're going to hear him introduce Helena Kirshner. And Helena's story is one that is complex, but began as a biological female. And then she transitioned to become a transgender man and now has detransitioned back to biological woman. And so in that whole story, you're going to just hear her perspective, what this was like with her parents, with her friends, and move into this conversation with Preston and Helena. And so I want to invite you to just sit back, listen in. It's one of those conversations, again, you can find on YouTube. You could also maybe share this with, if you have teens, if you have 
people who are questioning this, other parents who are trying to understand, it's, it's just one story. And that's the thing Preston always makes clear. When you hear this story, it's one story. It doesn't represent every story, but it's an important story that needs to be heard. If you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. That's a phrase that Dr. Mark, Mark Yarhouse likes to use to describe the wide diversity of different trans identities and experiences. And this morning, I want to talk about one particular kind of trans experience. It happens to be probably the most controversial aspect of the transgender conversation, and the transgender conversation is already filled with controversy. And the name by which this particular trans experience goes by is rapid onset gender dysphoria. The term rapid onset gender dysphoria is a psychological term that was coined by Dr. Lisa Littman from Brown University in a 2018 uh, study that she did. But the uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria was probably made most popular by Abigail Schreier's recent book, Irreversible Damage, which uh, is highly controversial. Um, there's a lot of critics of this book, some of whom have read the book, um, but it really kind of put this term rapid onset gender dysphoria on the popular stage. Now, the term rapid onset describes the quickness by which uh, many teenagers seem to be experiencing gender dysphoria. Um, the quickness being like they didn't have any prior history of experiencing gender dysphoria, and it seems like they kind of come out as trans or non-binary seemingly out of nowhere. Um, and this has become really important because there has been a massive increase in the number of teens coming out as trans or going to gender clinics for, uh, for gender dysphoria. In fact, in the United Kingdom, there has been a 5,000% increase among teenage females going to gender clinics uh, seeking help with this incongruence that they experience between their internal sense of self and their biological sex. And that's the UK, but uh, you, can, you can measure any Western country, any Western wealthy country, and you see this uh, very similar hockey stick kind of spike in teenagers, especially females, identifying as trans. Now, some people say, well, they've always been there. Um, they just now feel safer to come out. And, and that might be part of it. Society is certainly more accepting of, of trans identities. The only problem with that, though, is that there has been a really interesting inversion in the sex ratio. Uh, gender dysphoria is historically a rare psychological condition that typically affects males two to one uh, compared to females. But in the last 10 years, there's been a complete inversion in the sex ratio. So now it's affecting females at about a two to one rate. So there's probably something more going on than simply society is more accepting. So th this is what spurred Lisa Littman on to try to understand uh, this uh, population, this, this massive increase in teenagers coming out as trans or non-binary. And so she surveyed over 250 parents that had children that kind of fit this profile. And what she found was both remarkable and, and concerning. Probably the most concerning aspect of her study was that she found that these teenagers, mostly females, are experiencing uh, many mental health conditions alongside their gender dysphoria. 63% of the kids in the study 
had one or more diagnoses of a psychiatric disorder uh, or neurodevelopmental disability preceding the onset of gender dysphoria. 48% had experienced a traumatic or, or stressful event prior to their dysphoria. 45% were engaging in self-harm prior to dysphoria. Um, 12% were on the autism spectrum compared to about 2% of the general population. And, and in this study, probably the most disturbing thing that I read was that 28%, only 28% of clinicians that saw these teenagers um, chose to explore issues of mental health or previous trauma or any alternative causes of the gender dysphoria, even after the parents had told them that this is what my child has gone through. One of the main questions that came up in this study and many other studies that have been done since then on rapid onset gender dysphoria is this idea of social contagion. Is, is, there some, is it possible that there is something in the social environment, online environment, public environment with these teenagers that is playing some influential role in their trans identity? It's very controversial to even suggest that. Another controversial aspect of this conversation is the whole question of teen transitioning. Teen transitioning. Do, teen, do teenagers have the, the, the mental ability um, to make really significant decisions about irreversible medical intervention to treat their um, dysphoria? Is medical intervention even the best way? Hormones and uh, surgeries, are, is this the best way to treat gender dysphoria? Or should we explore other possible psychological uh, things going on that might be intertwined with or maybe even causing the gender dysphoria? Now, f facts and data and graphs and studies, these are all really, really, really important, okay? I think it's really good to do the research, to read the books, read the studies, but we are not to love thou data as yourself. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are a church. We are a group of Christians. And we need to love people. This conversation is not just about issues. It is about people. If you have met one transgender person, then you have only met one transgender person. And I want you to meet one formerly identified transgender person who very much lived this experience of rapid onset gender dysphoria. I want you to meet my friend, Helena Kirshner. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Q. <laughs> First you. time? Yes. All right. Um, you, you heard me talk about rapid onset very briefly and very controversial. Everything I said is controversial. Can you tell your story as it relates to this topic? Yeah, so... I think it's a shame that rapid onset, gen like this idea of rapid onset gender dysphoria is so controversial because the first time I looked at this study, this was after I'd already detransitioned, um, meaning that I stopped my trans identity. Um, I actually thought that it really resembled everything that the study found, like the high rates of uh, depression, anxiety, self-harm. I found that that really reflected my experience and the experience of so many young people that I'd known both in high school and in college. Um, so I, I think it's very accurate. And when I look back on myself as a child, um, I wasn't really a tomboy. I didn't have any gender dysphoria as a child. Um, I 
looked forward to wearing dresses. I liked getting little makeup kits for Christmas and stuff. So there was no real indication that I would ever grow up to identify as trans or want to become a boy. Um, and it all happened very, very rapidly around the time I was 15. And when I look back on that, I see the roots in me joining online communities, particularly Tumblr, um, and kind of distancing myself from friends in real life and peers in real life, and just kind of getting really embroiled in this community online where everything was about social justice, everything was about gender all the time. And there was these hierarchical ways of looking at people. Like it was bad to be a cis not trans, straight white girl. And that's what I was, I was a straight white girl. And I felt that that was very bad at the time being in these communities. So eventually that combined with my mental health issues, I had a lot of body image issues. Um, I was very socially self-conscious. Um, that all kind of combined together and resulted in me originally identifying as non-binary, but over the course of a few years, it kind of just snowballed into full-on trans. So the whole, the whole idea of, of social contagion, that there could be something, something in one's social environment that could play some role in somebody coming out identifying as trans, would you say that that is definitely part of your story? Absolutely. And without um, a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. When I look back, I don't think I would have ever even considered and seeing myself as a boy without these social aspects, um, especially if I hadn't join these online communities specifically because there wasn't anything at the time really in my school or in my community that was influencing me. It was all this online stuff. And actually, um, I have gone back and looked at my Tumblr account. There's a way where you can look back and look at the archive of all of your posts. Um, and I did find that there was literally a period of a few weeks to a few months where before the beginning of this period, there was nothing about gender. And then this period of a few months, you can just see me talking about gender more and more and more. I started out as an ally, and then eventually, over just the course of a few weeks to a few months, maybe two months at most, I was already starting to identify as transgender. So very rapid, very socially influenced. Would you? Okay, so that's your story. Now, yeah. I, and I'm, you're probably hesitant speaking on behalf of others, but did you have other yeah. friends or... Do you know others that would very much share your trajectory? Yeah, um, and just to put it out there, I don't claim that my story is everyone's story. I happen to still have friends who identify as transgender. They're great. I don't argue with them or tell them that they're not trans. Um, but um, yes, this was very common in my peers. Um, I had a few friends in high school. My best friend identified as trans. My other best friend identified as trans. Um, one of my other very close friends identified as trans. And they've all since detransitioned or desisted. Um, so this was very common. I had a lot of friends in high school. And then online, um, just looking back on it, it was the same pattern. Just kids who were really struggling, kids who were very alone and isolated. Maybe they didn't have a welcoming family life. Um, they just got caught up in these communities online and just started um, interpreting their emotional pain through this same lens together. Um, so there, obviously there's a big debate about puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones. Um, one of the big pieces of that debate is whether teenagers have the, the ability really to make decisions that could affect them for life. And you were on testosterone for a couple years almost, right? Mm -hmm. um, do, do you have an, like, do you think Teenage, like looking back, did you feel like 
you were able to make that decision or would you, what's your thoughts on teenagers being able to make that decision? Yeah. So I actually started testosterone when I was, on, when I was 18, I was on it for 17 months. Um, thankfully I've recovered pretty well. I haven't had a lot of health issues or anything from that. Unlike some people I know, but, um, so even at 18, I remember just being not completely, well, not really at all sure of myself and comfortable in myself. And I just, the way I was thinking back then, it was so much less developed. I feel like just the way my brain works now that I'm 22 is just completely different than it did when I was 18. And I still have more growing to do. So when I think about it in that context, and I think about younger teenagers, even younger than 18, thinking back to how I was when I was 16, 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, like these super for young kids, I just don't think it's realistic to put this decision on them that is basically saying, are you okay with the risk of permanent health effects, permanent disease, permanent injury to your body, permanent infertility that you can never, ever reverse? How can you ask that of such a small child um, when so many parents don't even really trust their 16, 15-year-olds with what they're going to have for dinner, you know? So it's just, it doesn't seem appropriate to me. I think a lot of people, if they think back to how they thought when they were teenagers, they wouldn't think it's appropriate. So um, I think that it's very important to protect young people, protect children. Um, they're the future of our society and you only get one life and you only get one body. So um, those are, I think that should be the priority in protecting health um, and protecting people's future wellness, happiness, ability to exist in their God-given body. Um, that should be the priority when talking about this. So you... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Can I, I want to, I want to clarify something. I didn't, I was debating whether I was even going to say this, but, um, Helena's story is not because of some like religious experience either for good or for ill. Like you, you're agnostic, like you don't have a religious yeah. commitment. So this isn't like I, this isn't like I found Jesus, went to a conservative church and they, um, pounded into me some anti-trans ideology. This is just your, your trajectory, your experience. Yep. Um, so thank you for being here. This is, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for uh, having me. You, you <laughs> <laughs> You, you quote tweeted a really high profile doctor, mm -hmm. and well, uh, th this lawyer. well medical doctor who said, Wait, "No, you're right, you're right." Okay, that the, um, <laughs> the, the rapid onset gender dysphoria doesn't exist; it's yeah. not a thing. Mm -hmm. um, I forget what exactly what you quote tweeted. It was kind of funny, or well, it's kind of sad, but funny. But uh, I don't know if you remember that. I do. I said. Um, the last seven years of my life and the lives of all of my friends from high school beg to differ. <laughs> Did he respond? No. No, no of course okay. not. So what do you, like, what do you say to people that say this doesn't exist? Because I've heard that from many people. Like, this rapid onset's made up. Being trans isn't socially contagious, all this stuff. And I, I want to emphasize, this is one aspect of the trans conversation. This is don't read the whole tr conversation through rapid onset. And I can see when people do that, that's wrong. Like, not everybody is who's identified as trans would fit this profile. I but there's agree. a growing number who do. What do you say to people when they say this doesn't exist? So I guess maybe you're, you just said it. So 
the claim that rapidons and gender dysphoria doesn't exist and there's no social contagion, that's a claim. You can make claims. But when you look at the statistics, like he mentioned, this explosive rise in adolescent girls identifying as trans, um, and you just, you just look at what's happening and you talk to people like me who can tell you, this absolutely happened to me, this absolutely happened to a lot of my friends, that, you know, it, it, it's valid for that to come up against those claims. So, um, yeah, I totally believe that there's a social contagion. I experienced it. Like I said, I observed it happening. I look back and I see it happening to so many people I knew at the time. Um, so I just don't think that, you know, just someone making a claim that there's no such thing as rapid onset gender dysphoria, like look at the facts. There's absolutely an argument that there is a rapid onset gender dysphoria. I want to just briefly talk about something really sensitive, suicidality. Suicidality often comes up in the trans conversation, and I often hear uh, parents of trans kids maybe be told, do you want an alive son or a dead daughter? Meaning either your child will most likely or very likely commit suicide or they need to transition. So those are your two options. What do you think about that statement? So uh, as we've said, in this population, these young people who are identifying as trans, there's a lot of comorbid mental health issues. There's a lot of depression, anxiety, self-harm, OCD, eating disorders. Um, and so I think that we should treat these young people the same way we would treat any other young person who's struggling with mental health issues. We should be caring and loving to them, and we should get them help, and we should pay attention to the root causes of why they're feeling the way that they're feeling. And I don't think that, um, you know, potentially causing an endocrine disorder by giving someone cross-sex hormones or um, potentially surgically altering healthy body parts is a, an appropriate way to respond to someone who's having mental health issues. I think that they deserve um, just a lot more personalized, specific, loving care. We just have another minute left. <laughs> Thank you. Um, can you just speak just for a few seconds to parents? There's probably a few parents out here who are like, you are my kid, or, you know, and yeah. probably listening, probably a lot more. What would you say to parents who might have a teenager that's going through this exact thing right now? Don't have a lot of time. This is such a, this would need like a hour. But um, the, the shortest thing that I will say is that there's a lot going on under the surface. The trans identity, at least for me, it was a way to communicate feelings that were too big for me to understand at the time because I was 15 and my brain wasn't working as good as it does now. Um, there's a lot going on underneath the surface. It's not going to work if you just argue, if you try to present facts. You really have to kind of humble yourself and bring yourself down to the level of your child and try to emotionally connect and figure out what is what are the emotional drivers what is your kid needing that they're kind of trying to express via the trans identity um, and go from there and really focus on strengthening the relationship as opposed to the goal of convincing them to think differently yeah. we, we, we just got a little, couple more minutes added to us so um, well, um, <laughs> well <laughs> Gabe was doing this. I don't know if he meant wrap it up or keep going. So I'm going to interpret it as keep going. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, uh, well, here, here's the, the, this is, as a, a parent with four kids, this situation just breaks my heart when there are situations that where, where a parent with somebody 13, 14, 15 year old is demanding 
cross sex hormones, and if their parent doesn't consent, they could lose custody. Is that is that a thing? Is that a myth? Is that a conspiracy theory, or is that happening? And what There's advice? There's a man you- in Canada who just got six months, I believe, in prison for failing to affirm the gender of his like 15 or 16 year old daughter. So. Definitely not a conspiracy theory. What, what would you say if you, if you had that parent who may be watching? I mean, like, what, what would you say to a parent? Would you say give in so you don't lose custody? Or is there anything, like, what would you do in that situation? I mean, the custody issue is definitely terrifying. Like, that's the state interfering in your sensitive relationship with your child. I don't know if I can speak to that. But um, just in terms of relationship issues without, like, the law coming in. Um, I would say that, um, yeah, again, it's just very important to prioritize that relationship and try to switch the focus away from the gender stuff. Because if you're just arguing about the gender stuff, they're going to double down. Um, You really need to kind of understand what is going on beneath the surface. Yeah. Okay. Are you sure you're not a closet Christian? Because you're you're giving really good relational advice. It's kind of like, that's kind of what I'd say. I'm a Christian. Anyway, uh, can you all thank Helena for joining us today? Thank you. Well, I hope you found this conversation captivating. There's nothing like hearing somebody in their own words just tell their story. It's so powerful, so important, and, and also so brave. And so we appreciated Helena being a part of this and for the way that Preston Sprinkle led and guided us through that conversation. I think uh, one of the things that becomes clear in this conversation is how much community has to be a part of our lives, how much when we lose community, it, it can contribute to us losing a sense of who we are, losing a sense of who we're meant to be and what our purpose and meaning is. And so I think as we extrapolate, like, what does this mean? As we think about our kids, as we think about everybody around us who is searching for identity, searching for meaning and purpose, that we contribute a lot by just showing up, by being in relationship, by being a part of the journey that people are walking through. Mm. And Gabe, I personally know some people struggling through this journey and their families right now. So I hope this conversation offers them some practical encouragements as they ride this journey with their struggling loved ones. Now, generally, most of the talks you hear on Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons are found in their original form on the Q Media platform at qideas.org, available to subscribers. And by the way, if you're not a subscriber yet, you can request a 30-day free trial at qideas.org. But Gabe, you felt this conversation was so important that you made it available for free on the Q Ideas YouTube channel. Share this with your friends. Share this with others who you know this story would encourage and would help bring clarity to a complex situation. Ideas with Gabe Lyons is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at myfaithradio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.